Well, good morning. It is good to be with my Hope Church family this morning. Um, If you've got your Bibles with you, I hope you've got something to look up Scripture with. Uh, Go ahead and open or scroll over to 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be camped out today. We're actually going to be kind of all throughout the book jumping around, which is a little bit different, I know, than what I normally do. Normally, we go through book by book, uh, verse by verse, and and preach through text. Um, But This next series is going to be a little bit different. What I want to do this morning is welcome you to the relaunching, the replanting, and refocusing of Hope Bible Fellowship. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see what God has to say about His church, about our mission in Dixon and around the world, and we're going to take a deep dive into the vision of why and how we're going to practically work all of this out in the life of our church body here. It's going to be exciting. I I know there's people who couldn't be here this morning who really wish they could have been here this morning. We're going to start out real basic talking about uh, what a church is, and then we're going to move in over the next few weeks to what we are going to be and do. I want to tell you that I really do. I know people say this. I know pastors get up and say this, but I, I talk to people during the week. I see people during the weeks and and. God is up to something here in this church body. And, and I don't say that just to like get you really excited so you'll buy into whatever I'm selling, okay? I'm telling you, I really believe God is at work in people's lives here. And I'm very excited to see what happens. And I hope you will want to be a part of that. God is about changing lives. And that's work that only God can do. By the blood of Jesus, he changes lives. And I believe that's what he is is doing and is going to do here. And you know something? As I said, he already is. And I'm excited and I want to get into it. But what I want you to do with me first is I want you to imagine with me for a minute what hope could be like, what Hope Bible Fellowship could be like. What would it be like if every week people in this church, members of this church, were meeting individually and in smaller groups outside of the church body, uh, excuse me, outside of the church building uh, during the week? You went to get coffee and you saw two or three members of the church sitting at the coffee shop with their Bibles open, or you went to McDonald's to get your favorite whatever thing that'll kill you, and, uh, and y- you walked in, and there sat two members from the church, uh, and they were, had their heads bowed, and they were praying, or you walked into something and saw people, and they were talking about life, and one older brother was telling a younger brother about uh, raising his kids in the church. What would our church look like? Can you imagine with me for a minute, if we couldn't move the Baptist, the baptismal, sorry, I don't know what you guys call it here. We called it a baptistry because it was part of the building. But if we, the, the cattle trough that we baptize in that's out back, what if we, what if we couldn't ever, what, what, if we, what if we had to get a new one because it rusted out because we were using it so much? What would our church look like if we had to continually start new discipleship training classes because we had so many people who wanted to follow Jesus and know what the Bible had to say about what it looked like to be a a member of a godly, healthy church. What would it look like? What would it look like someday when I get even older than I already am? And instead of one year, I've been here 20 or 25 years. And uh, And we have a service where we install a new pastor, and it's a pastor who, when he was little, he was in our nursery ministry. And then he came into our children's ministry, and then he was in our youth group, and then, and then we sent him off to be trained, and we helped, we helped support him to be trained as a pastor in seminary. And then we let him intern with us. And then we installed him as a new pastor, and I retired to somewhere warmer. Just kidding. That probably won't be able to happen. <laughs> well, but I want you to imagine what it would look like. I want to give you a little quiz. Now, I know that's not quite fair, because you came 
to church this morning and didn't think you were going to be tested on anything. But I want to ask you this question, and I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to just like think of your answer, because if everybody yells out their answer, it's going to get real wild in here, okay? So just think about what your answer is. The biggest reason I come to Hope Bible Fellowship is, it's multiple choice. I'm going to give you a multiple choice, okay? The biggest reason I come to Hope Bible Fellowship is, number one, A, the coffee. By the way, the coffee bar will open again next weekend, and so, uh, so come early to hang out and drink coffee, okay? Sorry. So, biggest reason you come to Hope Bible Fellowship is, number one, is it A, the coffee? Is it B, I love family feast days? I've heard all about those, okay? Or is it C, the free babysitting? Grace? Uh, is it, I say that not because she likes free, but because she is the, never mind. She's usually in the nursery, that's why. Is it D, the pastor's awesome jokes? No, no, no. Somebody actually, thank you for saying no, I appreciate it. Or is it E, other? Now, the appropriate answer is E, other. But what should that other be? What is the purpose of this gathering? Why do we come together? Hopefully, you would have said in your heart and in your mind something like, Jesus, the gospel, to worship God with his people. Okay? Now, one more question. Question number two, also multiple choice. This is the question. To me, becoming a member of and actively participating at Hope is... Okay, so that's your statement you're making. And then I'm going to give you options that you could fill in, okay? To me, becoming a member and actively participating at Hope is... Okay, A, nice... A nice idea, but, but optional. B, a cultural expectation based on my upbringing. C, impossible due to my schedule. Or D, crucial to being a Christ follower. Well, I want to say that being an active member in a local church, I believe, is actually crucial to being a Christ follower. I think it's letter D. And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. Yet some people have some reservations about fully committing to a local church. I recognize that. Some of you walked in today with some baggage. And I don't mean like a diaper bag, okay? Like some of you came in with some baggage. You've got a past. Hey, we all do. If you've been alive at all, you have a past. Maybe you have trouble committing to a local church because you were a part of a legalistic church once that had a bunch of rules that were not biblical and they expected things of you and they were very harshly judgmental towards you. Maybe you, you've been bruised like, like, a, like a bruised fruit that's been dropped on the ground. Maybe you've been through a church split. You've been hurt by people leaving you. Maybe you were a part of a church at one point where uh, they thought that the denomination was the vine and the churches were the branches and that the denomination supplied all the stuff. Maybe you were a part of a super separatist church that feels sterile and, and emphasizes uh, method more than message. Church culture in these churches, the church culture trumps the church creed. So maybe you come in, you've been a part of a really unhealthy church. So we need to ask the question, what is a church? And then we want to look at what does it look like for a church to be healthy? Because we want to be a healthy church, right? I don't think any of us came in here today and thought, wow, I really hope I could be a part of a really sick church. Okay? Sick in the bad way, not the way the kids use the word now, okay? It's like one of those bad is good things, okay? Well, we don't want to be a part of an unhealthy church. So what is a church? What, what is a local church? What does it do? Who leads the local church? How do we as Hope Bible Fellowship be a healthy church? These are all questions we want to answer today and in the following weeks. And I am indebted to Dr. Mark Dever and the ministry of Nine Marks for teaching me these biblical truths over the years and, and continuing to learn what it means and how it plays out in a local church's life and ministry. I don't have this all figured out yet, guys. We're working it out together. We're working it out together. Some of the points this morning will come directly from a study that Dr. Dever did called Marks of a Healthy Church, and I took the men's group through it last fall. We had a really, I think it was fall or winter, maybe it was both, it was pretty long. 
Um, some of the points will come directly from that. And one thing I told the guys as we were in there and we were finishing up, because they kept saying, man, I wish the whole church could hear this stuff. And I said, well, just hold on, because they will. <laughs> and this is part of what you're going to be getting. So some of that comes directly from this material. So uh, I want to just, that's full disclosure on some of this stuff. But this morning, we're going to look at what the church is supposed to be. And we're going to see the primarily in the book, we're going to look primarily in the book of 1 Corinthians to see that. Paul in 1 Corinthians, is addressing the church at Corinth, and he's addressing issues that he'd gotten word about from them. He had heard about these issues, and, and, and he was addressing them. And through his addressing of these problems that were going on in the Corinthian church, we can see what a healthy church is supposed to look like and what we're supposed to do in situations where there is unhealth. And we're going to stumble into unhealth because we're sinful people, okay? So there has to be correctives that we take. Uh, with one another. So before we begin, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand and open our hearts to what he would have us know today as his church. God, we come again to you. And God, I thank you that I've been the pastor here for, gosh, almost a year, uh, hearing about the party and everything they're doing. It's, number one, it's humbling. And number two, it's it's a little bit mind-blowing for me that it's been that long already. And um, God, you know my heart is not to focus on method, not to focus on numbers or programs or any of that stuff that, you know, can help, but it's just not the focus. And I pray that my heart as a pastor would be clear, that your heart for your church would be clear, and that everybody here and watching online would commit would commit to stepping in and being the church that you have designed. May you be big, Jesus. May I decrease and you increase here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, number one, what is the church? What is the church? I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I just want to look at one verse right now, and that's verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and it says this, it'll be familiar to some of you. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. See, the church is the body of Christ, each member with a role to play, each member with a gift, and with, and with a part to play, the Hands aren't any more important than the bladder, all right? I'm afraid I may be the colon, okay? Uh, But that's just a whole other thing, right? But what is the church? It's the body of Christ, but there's some specific things I want us to understand about the church. First of all, and these are pretty basic, but I want to go through them. First of all, the church is a people, not a place. It's a people, not a place. You can't, as the song says, you can't go to church because the church is you, okay? The church is a gathering of people. The, the word in the Bible is ecclesia, um, and that is a, literally a gathering of people, okay? Which the church being a gathering of people is part of the reason why it was so um, painful for those of us who regularly are a part of a local church to not be able to be a part of a local church during the pandemic when everybody was shut down, right? And and that's why we see all these upticks in, uh, you know, mental issues and lots of other things. But this is the gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship. The building, this building is not hope. I've, I've said, look, this building could burn to the ground and we'd go meet under a tree and still have Hope Bible Fellowship, okay? And thankfully, with this church being a younger church body, about 14 years old, um, we haven't slid yet into some of those traditions that some older churches have where they really identify their church with the building, and the building becomes like this super sacred place, right? Uh, And that's why they argue over the color of the carpet and stuff like that. But it's a people, not a place. The church is not a platform, It's not a business. It's not some kind of spiritual service provider. It is a people, specifically the new covenant blood-bought people of a holy God. 
Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ didn't give his life for a place. He didn't give his life up for a building or a platform. He sacrificed his life for a people, for his people, the church. Secondly, the church is a people, not a statistic. It's a people, not a statistic. As a pastor, I face this all the time. I face it as a metric of how I'm measured by outsiders, as well as a personal temptation. Let you let you behind the curtain a little bit, peel back the layers of the onion, as well as a personal temptation towards despair. A church is a people and not simply a number. It's not an attendance figure. It's not the amount of baptisms in a single year. Faithfulness to the gospel must be our measure of success. And yet, when I go hang out with pastors, now, not as much anymore because we're starting to realize the problems of this, but a lot of times, when you go hang out and you get a bunch of pastors in the room, the first question that's asked is, how many are you running? And there's a temptation, uh, just for me and other pastors, towards personal despair if it's less than the other guy, or if it's a lot less than the other guy. So what is the definition, though, of a church? How can we put it kind of in layman's terms and kind of, if it's not, a, it's not a place, it's a people, it's not a statistic, how can we kind of put it together in something that is biblical and describes what a church is? Well, I would submit to you this. It's the people of God gathered in covenant with one another where the gospel is rightly preached. So that's important. The gospel is rightly preached. And the ordinances are observed. Well, what are the ordinances? Well, we have two ordinances in the church, um, in, in, again, most Protestant churches. But we have two ordinances in this church that we recognize, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper, or some of you call it communion, okay, depending on the background you came out of. So we have, it is, again, the people of God gathered in covenant with one another where the gospel is rightly preached and the ordinances are observed. Now the church is to be governed by Christ's laws as expressed in his word in which there are two offices, elder and deacon, and we'll get to those later. But the duties of these two offices are listed in the letters to Timothy and Titus. Okay? So what the church does... I recognize churches have constitutions or bylaws, uh, which those are interchangeable, and we'll talk about that later too. Um, but, but those things are only as good so much as they agree with this. And if you come to a place where something in your documents or whatever disagrees with this, this isn't the thing that changes. Okay? But, but what it, because of this point that the church is governed by Christ's laws as expressed in his word. It's not subjective to what I feel like, okay? It's based on what Christ has said in his word. So that's what a church is. What is a church supposed to be like? And, and once we figure that out, why is a church supposed to be like that? Well, there's three things that a church is supposed to be like, or three characteristics that I want to focus on this morning that a church is supposed to be like and why. Number one is holy or pure. Holiness is, it's a set apart for a specific purpose. It's a strangeness to the world. For the church to be holy is to be strange to the world, set apart for God's use. The church is made up of those who have been called to be holy and blameless. Okay? Now, we're not part of the church because we're holy and blameless. That's not how it works. You can't be good enough to end up being saved. You can't earn salvation by being good enough. And you only become part of, of the church, the, the universal church, the body of Christ, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And those who have been saved have been called to be holy and blameless. They're set apart for a special relationship with God. And our message and wisdom and motivation is to be different than the message and motivation and wisdom of the world. And this kind of is a callback to Psalm 1 that we talked about several weeks ago. We're to be strange to the world. The world ought to look at the church 
and see something different. We've got to see something different. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, both chapters cover this. But Christians are God's temple because God's temple is sacred. The church is called to be pure. So, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that his death on the cross was enough, was sufficient to pay the price for your sin, that he died in your place for your sin on the cross, and he rose again three days later, He's ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, and he will return one day for his church. If you have trusted Jesus and you are a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, then you are God's temple. See, God used to have a building that was the temple. But now, through Jesus, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we are God's temple. And the temple is sacred because God's temple is sacred, because God's presence is there. Therefore, the church, the gathering of his people, is to be pure. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And folks, God has always been concerned about the purity of his people. Do you know that? God is always, New Testament, Old Testament, God has always been concerned with the purity of his people. Um, and I'll give you some examples. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul, writing, uh, addressed some sexual sin that was going on in the church. Okay? Uh, there was a dude, and he was shacked up with his stepmom, basically. Okay? And I heard one pastor say, if there's a gal you call mom, and then you take her to prom, that's just sick and wrong, right? Um, and, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, it says, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we're not going to have time to unpack that whole passage there. But what you need to understand is, Paul was saying, hey, there's stuff being done to you that the pagans even think is gross. And he tells him to remove the guy. Because it was affecting the purity of the church. Now, if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, you hear a very similar refrain. You hear a very similar refrain as God spoke to the Israelites who were preparing to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So God's always been concerned about the purity of his people and getting rid of impurity. Okay, calling, again, this would be calling people to repentance. All right, calling people to repentance in the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, there's a whole process for, you know, church discipline and everything else. So what I'm not advocating is us killing people, okay? <laughs> All right? That's not what I'm advocating here. Yeah, yeah, everybody breathe a sigh of relief. It's okay. But the point is, purity and holiness of the church is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. Holiness is an essential part of the Christian life. You know, Paul explains or argues in 1 Corinthians 6 that Christians have been washed and sanctified and will be resurrected. And that means that what Christians do with their bodies is significant. It matters what we do with our physical bodies. And Paul also would argue that resurrection underscores God's concern for what is done with our body in this life. Paul pleads with the Corinthians to remember Israel and not to fall into idolatrous, evil desires. He pleads with them in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Holiness, friends, is to mark the church. We're to be constantly striving after a God 
honoring way of life. That's holiness played out. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Cal, this really sounds like do more, do more, do more, make yourself holy. That's not what it is. This is grace-fueled effort. It's fueled by an understanding that without Jesus, you can do nothing. And that you will fail in this. You will sin. But that Jesus' blood on the cross is sufficient to cover that sin. For forgiveness of your sins. This is us living a grace-fueled, God-honoring way of life. Which is holiness played out. And holiness is an essential part of the church. So many aspects of the church reinforce our need to be holy. So if the church is to be holy. Now, this is where a lot of denominations and individual churches have gotten a little extreme with some things. I think we should be extreme in working out holiness, but not in such a way that we dip our toes into the waters of legalism. Which, by the way, is very easy to do. It's very easy to stumble into legalism. Obeying the word of the Lord and expecting other people to obey the word of the Lord, though, is not legalism. It becomes legalism when you add to it to somehow keep yourself separate while not working on your evil heart. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about encouraging one another to live holy lives. Lives set apart for God. We're not talking about establishing a bunch of secondary rules and then for our life and then expecting everyone else to live by those rules that we made around our lives. So the church is to be holy. So secondly, so the church is to be holy. Secondly, the church is to be united. The church is to be united. By the way, Jesus is the one that makes us holy. In case that wasn't clear, Jesus is the one that makes us holy. Jesus is also the one that makes us united. So the church of Christ, the church of God, is to be united. Christians are to be separated from the world, but not separated from each other. We're to be different than the world in the way we think, in the way we act, in the choices we make, the decisions we make. But we're not to be different from one another. Now, now excuse me, we are to be different. Okay, let me go back. We're not to be separated from one another. We're not to be separated. We are going to be different, but we're not. To be, I'm very different. But we're not to be separated. Unity is a distinguishing mark of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 4 says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? See, the thing about unity, it's what makes us different than the world. And when there's jealousy and strife, divisiveness, disunity through us, it sends a message to the world as well. See, unity, when the church is unified, it testifies that the gospel is true. Unity, in the early church, transcended the division between Jew and Gentile. So it transcends racial divisions. And every worldly division is transcended by the unity found in Christ. Paul's especially upset in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because he sees division during the Lord's Supper, during communion in Corinth. I mean, it's supposed to be a feast of unity, but they had division. You had people sort of budding in line to get to the front. He tells them, well, you ought to eat before you come. When I say unity... I mean, unified in direction and purpose and love. And when I say unity, I'm not saying uniformity. Okay? Unity is not uniformity. We're not a bunch of robots that look like we came out of a pressing plant, right? We're going to be different. We're going to look different. We're going to have different ideas. 
We don't all have to be the same to have unity. We can have unity of worship, unity of mission, and unity around the gospel without being exactly the same on every little thing. And we need to have our doctrine in order, right? We need to have our lives in order. But there is room for us to be different in some areas. So the church is to be holy, united, and number three, loving. The church is to be loving. Mark Dever points out that 1 Corinthians 8 through 14 is this long excursus on the topic of love. It deals with showing consideration toward others because love is how Christians are unified and love is what keeps us together. Love builds up the church, okay? I've been in a lot of churches, okay? There was one church that actually um, hired me and my family, paid us money to come be like a secret shopper at their church and see, you know, basically when we went a couple of weekends and then we filled out this, you know, questionnaire about, you know, how did it go and were people friendly and all this stuff. And we found that, no, they weren't very friendly. (laughs) They were friendly to each other, um, but, I mean, there was one person that literally just stared us down. Um, it was very, it was very weird. So love builds up the church. So not only do we, and, and again, we want to see love between members of the church, but when people come in and see that and we're, and we're loving to them as well, um, that says something to them about what we believe, about what we believe. Love builds up the church. 1 Corinthians 8.1, now considering, or excuse me, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So here's Paul's principle of love, and it's in 1 Corinthians 10.24. Paul's principle of love is this, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So when we come to one another, we're supposed to be seeking the good of the other person, not just our own good. That sounds awfully unselfish. That when I come to church, I'm not here just to absorb everything and consume, 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 pull up to the table, eat what I want, and leave. I'm not treating it like a buffet. I'm not getting in front of everybody. I'm here not just seeking, not seeking my own good, but the good of my neighbor. Seek the good of your neighbor, not yourself. Paul speaks of love as the most excellent way because it edifies the church. So, here's the first question I want to ask that is going to make you try to put some legs on it in your own life and heart. And that's this. Is what you do and say and how you act edifying to the church? Are the things that you do and the things that you say and the way that you act, are they helping to build up the church or do they tear down the church? Love determines how the church is to function. Paul even prioritizes uh, the gift of prophecy over tongues because prophecy edifies the church. It's something that edifies the church. And the, the most loving way to exercise your spiritual gifts in the church is for the edification, the building up of others. Are you, are, are you fighting against what will be good to, uh, for others? Are you fighting against what would be good to build someone up in their discipleship? You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is in this big, long excursus on love, right? And it's like the most famous one to most of us. We read it at weddings, right? Love is patient, love is kind, you know it. It's known as the love chapter of the Bible, but one pastor actually argues that Paul's practical application of love in chapter 14 makes it just as definitive of a chapter on love. See, lest you think Paul was someone just kind of setting at a distance and dispensing out these commands, you need to know that that the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, loved the local church. He was sensitive to the health of the local church, And this book of 1 Corinthians is in large part, again, his response to issues that were going on in the church because he loved them. He had a a desire for them to be a healthy, godly church because Paul had experienced the grace of God himself. 
And though he had experienced the grace of God himself, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul called himself the least of the apostles because in his past, he had been the one persecuting the church of God. When he was saved by Jesus on, his, on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to Damascus to put the Christians in chains. So it's only fitting. It's only fitting that he, who had been persecuting the church, urges so strongly that the Christian church love one another and do all things to build up the church. So you've got a guy who was tearing down the church, literally watching people put to death, right? He was there when Stephen was stoned. And now this guy goes from tearing down the church to saying, no, we do what we do. You need to do what you do in love to edify, to build up the church. And we see why love was so important to Paul. So the church is supposed to be holy and united and loving, but it it begs the question, why is the church supposed to be holy and loving and united? Like, what's the purpose behind that? The answer is quite simple, but it is pregnant with uh, profoundness. The church is to be these things. The church is to be holy and united and loving because God is holy, united, and loving. Dever says the character of the church is to reflect the character of God. incredible right when you think about it we're supposed to reflect as a church the character of god that when people look at the church they could see what the character of god is like now if you're like me you're thinking right now in your mind as i am how how am i doing with that (laughs) are you thinking that How, how, how are you doing with that how am i doing with that Number one, the, the church must be holy because God is holy. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 said, I told you we we're going to be all over 1 Corinthians. 11.1 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, imitating Christ makes us different than the world. God has set us apart. The wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom is the gospel. But the gospel is foolishness to the world. And we're strange to the world because the world is estranged from God. The world is separated from God. The world is at war with God. And if we are going to belong to God, then we will be like God. God has brought us, excuse me, God has bought us by the blood of Jesus and indwelt us by his spirit. So we must be holy so as to reflect his holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're to be holy because God is holy. We're to glorify God in our bodies because our bodies are not our own because we were bought with the price of the blood of Christ. Number two, the church must be united because God is one. God is united. The Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God is one. Three in one, three persons in one Godhead. They're not each part of God. That's a heresy called modalism. Okay? God is completely and perfectly united. Paul reminded them, the Corinthians, that the, the work of the church is all the work of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 9 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, you are, not being mere, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The one foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And what was going on in Corinth 
Well, she had people say, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and then you had these holy rollers that were like, well, I follow Jesus, you know, and, and they, were, they were picking which guy they were going to follow. And in doing so, they were disunified. They had division among them. And Paul was telling them that it should not be that way. The one true foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. So if, if what the character of Christ is, the character of God is, is what the character of the church is to be, and the character of the church should reflect the character of God, then if we are disunified, while God is unified, then our disunity tells a lie about God to the world. That's pretty heavy. That when we have division, when we are not unified, we're telling a lie to the world about God. Because God has no division or disunity in him. Number three, the church must be loving because God is loving. Love for God must be at the center of our hearts as a response to his tremendous love for us. God took the initiative to redeem the church. So the church must reflect God's love to a dying world. Mark Dever said, The church is the means by which we are called to display God's character to the world. Holiness, unity, and love displayed for the whole world to see. I've been a part of several churches in my 43 years of life. Many of you have been a part of more than one church. Some of you, this is the only church maybe that you've been a part of. But I've been a part of several churches, and some of them I thought were pretty good churches at the time. You know, while I was there. But as I think back about them, I'm not sure how many of them I would say were truly healthy. Not that they didn't have good godly people in them. They did. Not that they didn't do good godly things with the gospel. They did. But some of them, I look back and I say, I don't think that church was truly healthy. And eventually, over time, you saw it played out. I'm not talking about perfect you don't have to be perfect, and you're not going to find a perfect church to join. Like, if you're perfect today, you should leave, because we will mess you up, okay? All right? Probably me, first of all, I will mess you up, right? Uh, there, you're not going to find a perfect church to join, but we want to be a healthy church, and this means we need to ask what a biblically healthy church looks like. What does the Bible say about that? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you a few marks of the healthy church. And these, again, come straight out of uh, Dever and Lehman's study that, that uh, we did as a men's group. Okay, so I didn't make these up, but they are biblical and they're right. And these are things that should mark a church that is healthy. And they're things that I find in most healthy churches that I know of or I have experience with friends who pastor healthy churches. And these are the things I do see at work in those healthy churches. But you need to understand, this is not an exhaustive list, okay? These are just some marks of a healthy church. They're not all of the marks of a healthy church, okay? These are simply nine of them. There are obviously other things in healthy churches, but the main thing is these are nine points that are biblical, okay? And we're going to buzz through them pretty quick, okay? But number one, uh, Marks of a Healthy Church, number one, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, it reflects the centrality of the Word of God. So expositional preaching is simply preaching that opens the Word, takes a passage of Scripture, and exposits, exposes the meaning of the Word, and then applies it, okay? So that's the type of preaching that I attempt to do almost every Sunday. Now, I realize it's odd that I'm saying that right now as I'm in a topical series where I'm preaching on topics rather than just going through books. But the, the main diet of a healthy church, okay, a church that is to be truly healthy, expository preaching should be the main diet of it. Now, obviously, you can still do some topical things and all of that, but expository preaching should be the main diet of a healthy church. Number two. Uh, oh, and let me just say this, on, and part of the reason why expositional preaching should be the main diet is because it considers the whole counsel of God. When I say, I'm going to preach through, um, the, well, I preached through the book of Titus right after I came, right? and had a lot to say about pastor elders, right? And so I don't get to just pick 
the good passages that I like that say the things I want to say to you. I have to preach everything. And so we get a full view at the whole counsel of God. When I have to start at the beginning of John 1 and end at the end of John, you hear the whole thing, not just... So pastors, what we have a tendency to do is when we, like in churches especially where it's all topical all the time, we have a tendency to have six or seven of our kind of pet topics, and we just always go back to those same topics and just label it a different series name. And that's not what I want to do because I don't think that's a healthy thing for the church. Number two, biblical theology, which is understanding God's truth as a cohesive and coherent whole. So it's when we look at how we understand uh, the Bible as a whole of God's word, the whole counsel of God again. And I understand the first five of these, uh, the first, yeah, the first four or five of these have to do primarily with the preaching and the last have primarily to do with um, our interactions with, with one another. Three is a biblical understanding of the gospel, which is the heart of the Christian message. Dever said, he has some really good stuff to say. He said, a church confused about the gospel is like a blind Uber driver. It's like a forgetful historian. It's like a colorblind artist. A church confused about the gospel is worse than worthless. It is a blocked emergency exit. It's an elevator to hell. So it is crucial and critical that we get the gospel right. That we have a biblical understanding of the gospel We've got to get the gospel right. Number four, a biblical understanding of conversion. A biblical understanding of conversion, undoing the damage of false converts, getting to a true understanding of what it means to be a Christian, to be transformed by the power of the gospel, and what the Bible teaches about conversion, what the Bible teaches about what it means to become a believer in Christ. And that's linked completely with a biblical understanding of the gospel. Fifth, a biblical understanding of evangelism. We need to understand what our responsibility is as those under the authority of Christ. I'll give you a little sneak peek. We're all supposed to do it. That's it. That's the message. Not, not, not just me, not just those in the employ of the church, not those who have a title, but a biblical understanding of evangelism, and also what is evangelism. Because there's some things that have passed as evangelism in our world today in churches that are not really evangelism. Number six, a biblical understanding of church membership. There is a biblical understanding of what it means to be a part of a local church. We'll talk about that later, not today. Some of you are like, later, I'm going to go to lunch. We're going to work on getting a clear understanding of biblical church membership and everything that that means. Number seven, biblical church discipline. And this goes part and parcel with church, biblical church membership, okay? We find that, but this is biblical church discipline. This is also a restorative church discipline, not punitive, okay? It is to restore. Yes, at some point when someone refuses to repent, there is a point where, as in the passage today we talked about, they are they are like, when they show that they want to run with Satan, we turn them out eventually. Um, but that's after a long, loving process of calling for repentance and restoration. And the point is restoration and repentance, not punishment. So I, I say that, that can get misunderstood a lot, especially if you've been in a church that has practiced it wrongly. Okay? And in, well, what a lot of guys will do is they will make the mistake of starting to pastor a church that's never practice church discipline and they'll come in and immediately start like we got to do church discipline now and then they find themselves in the unemployment line because they haven't taught what it's for and what it's about and why number eight a concern for discipleship and growth this is really where uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks on talking about um the the hope uh discipleship training track how we're going to make disciples and then send you out equipped to make disciples. Evangelism that does not result in discipleship is incomplete evangelism. We don't want to just get people to pray a prayer. If our evangelism stops with just sharing the good news of Jesus and we don't disciple them, then our evangelism is not complete. Number nine, biblical church leadership. 
This is church leadership not granted as a response or a reward for secular gifts or position in the world, but invested in those who have given evidence in their lives as being qualified and working, excuse me, for the edification of the body. So in a lot of churches, somebody gets a position of leadership because they're really a good insurance salesman or a good dentist or a good something else. And I've experienced that. And one guy tell me one time, he was talking about the, the chairman of deacons in a particular church I was at. And he had grown up in that church and he said, uh, that guy, I won't say the guy's name, but that guy, chairman of deacons, he said, uh, he's not even a Christian. And unfortunately, that's more common than you might imagine that you get people who, because they're really good at their job, they get put into a leadership position in the church without being biblically qualified for that. Or you get a church that's set up in a way that, that is not really in keeping with the way in the position and offices of the church that the Bible talks about. And so uh, those things are important to understand. But those are, those are nine of the marks of a healthy church. There's an additional one I would add, which is prayer. And we're going to talk a lot about prayer uh, coming in, in the future here. But friends, as we move forward, I know there's been a lot of information in this one. And just to be quite frank with you, I was so, I don't get nervous about, I don't get nervous about preaching. I just don't. I've done it long enough now. Put me up in front of 70 people, put me up in front of 700, I don't, I'm fine. I think I'd be fine. Not that I've ever preached in front of 700 people. I've not. But, you know, I don't care, youth camp, but kids, Whatever. And I was pretty nervous about today because as I got to preparing, this is kind of a big deal because I'm like, we're, we're really at a point in the life of this church where we're really relaunching out into the world, right? We've been through some stuff and you got a new pastor and I've been here a year now. And we're kind of at that point where we're going to be talking about some stuff and doing some things and making some changes and uh, honestly a little bit nervous about it because there's such a temptation to get caught up in the world of uh, church pharma. And what that is, is there's this big, you, you don't know this, you're not a pastor, there's this big industry that's like all this church growth junk out there of like, are you breaking the 200 barrier? And how to get your church past this? And how to do this, not this? And it's all based on biblical, or excuse me, it's all based on business practices and not based on being a biblically healthy church. And we're not a business I recognize we have to do our taxes and all that. I, under, I get that, okay? But the church is a people, not a corporation. No matter what, we have to register as a, with the government, okay? I want us to be a healthy church. I want us to be a biblical church. And I want that to come through in my heart. It starts with each of us committing to the Lord and then committing to do that which moves the church towards health and towards holiness, unity, and love. First, though, we must be a people of prayer. Do you know that prayer has been the precursor to every great revival movement that has started? There was a people dedicated to prayer to praying for revival, to praying for new life. And so I would ask you to commit to being a people of prayer. For us to be known as that, we're going to, I haven't got it scheduled or anything, but I've been working through um, getting us together and having a kind of a solemn assembly, a night of prayer and worship, and um, probably later in the fall. And I haven't, we don't, uh, that's all I've done is basically brainstorm on it. But to have us come together and to just seek the Lord's face together. Uh, next week, um, next week we're going to be handing out copies of our bylaws. Um, these are, uh, for the last couple of years, even before I arrived on the scene here, there was a process in place to 
um, just, just to shore up some things in the bylaws and kind of uh, change a few things and write some things in that would help us. Um, I'm excited because this is going to be a key part of us moving forward um, and unifying in our mission and how we, we see how we can come together. But we're going to be giving copies out next week for you, any church members, actually anybody can look at them. Church members are the ones that are going to get to vote. But um, we'll be giving those out next week, printed copies. If you'd rather have an email copy, talk to us next week. We'll probably email you a copy in PDF or whatever. But uh, we'll be having those copies available um, we're going to give you a month to look at those before we vote. I think our current constitution says we have to give two weeks, but um, we want to make sure that you have plenty of time to look over, read everything. If you have any questions during that month, you can come to one of the deacons or come to me, um, and we'd be happy to talk you through that and answer that. About two weeks into that period of time, I'm planning on us having just a little Q&A session uh, where uh, maybe after church one Sunday, or on, and it may be a different night of the week, I'm just not sure yet. Um, uh, where you can come, and if you have any questions that haven't been answered yet that you want to ask, you can ask those, and we can talk about it and really celebrate it together. Um, but I'd encourage you, if you have, uh, again, if you have questions about any of that, talk to, talk to a deacon. They would be happy to, to share with that with you, and I would as well. Um, but you'll have a month to pray about the new document, and then we'll vote um, on whether to approve it or not. And then also, um, at that same meeting, we'll be voting on bringing in the new bylaws. And once we do that, then we can move forward with things like our 501c3 status and all that stuff that we've still got to do. Um, we'll also be voting to bring, in a, bring on a new deacon. We've got Jordan Young, who's being presented as a—he as, was a deacon. Now we're going to be bringing him back on as a deacon. So if you have any questions about that uh, as a church body or concerns or any— thing about that, then go to one of the deacons and talk to them. Uh, then they can answer any questions or talk to you or anything about that. And so we'll be voting on, that's going to be a big, a big meeting in the life of the church because we'll be voting on new bylaws and we'll be voting on bringing in another deacon uh, to help serve the, the church body. So it's exciting. I am certainly excited about the future of Hope Bible Fellowship. I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up. And uh, this morning, what I want you to do is if you would stand with me, I want us to pray together for the life of our church. We're going to be in this replant series for, for a few weeks, and we're going to be talking about um, how are we going to play out some of these things. Like, what's our mission as a church? And then, not just, so this is what the church is supposed to be like. What's our mission as a church given by the Lord? And then, what is the vision of how that's going to kind of be played out uh, kind of practically here? And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is to pray together for the life of our church, and then, uh, and then we're going to have a time of, of worship where they're going to lead us in, a, in another song and um, pray these things. Take some time and pray for the church. Pray regularly for the church. If you want, during the song, gather with some people near you and pray together for the church and for the future of the church and, and our direction. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and excited that we would be a reflection of love, of unity, and holiness. Pray that we'd be protected from the dangers of legalism or licentiousness. Pray for that person who is next to you on either side of you in the front and behind you. We've got to be actively lifting each other up in prayer. So if you feel, if you feel led, if you want to do that, then gather with people and pray as we sing. But I'm going to lead us in a prayer um, before the music starts. And if there's people who still want to stay after and pray with one another after, um, we, won't, we won't close the building up till you're done. All right? Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, I, I come before you and I thank you, Jesus, for this church body. I, I thank you for what you seem to be doing here and the direction you seem to be leading us. God, help us have the faith to step, step by step, um, to follow your direction. God, I pray we would be a people of prayer, a people focused and centered upon the gospel, a people not ashamed of you, but a people who are known for our, our unity, our holiness, our love. That the gospel would be big here, Jesus. And God, what I want is deep spiritual growth, deep discipleship among our people. 
Father, we want you to be glorified. We want to be more like you. We want to reflect you more clearly to the world around us. And God, we do want to see a harvest of people from the community who come to know you and are made into disciple makers here. God, I pray you do this all even in spite of me and my, <laughs> my leadership where I fall so short sometimes, God. Help me lead as I follow you, Jesus. Help me be an imitator of you. Help each of us be an imitator of you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.